welcome to this special bonus episode of Republic Forces Radio Network, bringing you coverage of Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 6. Our hosts will be recapping and reviewing each arc of these Netflix-exclusive final Clone Wars episodes. And we want to hear your thoughts on the last Clone Wars episodes. Leave a message on our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI, and your call may be played on the air. Hello and welcome back to Republic Forces Radio Network, where we're covering Season 6 of The Clone Wars. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be discussing the two-part arc of The Disappeared. And joining me to discuss this interesting duology is Jen. Hello, guys. Misa, really looking forward to this one. Jerry. (laughs) Hey, guys, it's Jerry. How's everybody doing? And our own Nathan P. Butler. We shall name the Anuba Jar Jar. So, uh, I'm sure that everyone has their opinions on this. This duology has as its central figure our favorite Jar Jar Binks. Love him or hate him, we still have to deal with him. And this time, Mr. Binks is matched with Mr. Windu. So, before we talk about specifics... Why don't you guys give me your overall impressions of this episode, and why don't we start with Nathan? Let me put it this way. Best Jar Jar ever. Now, granted, that's not saying a whole heck of a lot, but I have to say this is probably the first time that I have really enjoyed a Jar Jar episode and felt like he really fit. Even the other ones where he was very comedic, whether it's Bombad Jedi or whatnot, they've always been episodes where everything else is very serious around him, and he always felt like his bumbling was the oddity of the episode, and it didn't entirely fit. It worked as comedy relief, but didn't necessarily fit the overall tone always of the episodes themselves. And this time, I mean, we really have a pair of episodes here that play very well the Indiana Jones vibe and such, And in which Jar Jar is not only an important piece, but he's, in a lot of ways, the serious character out of him and Mace at some point. I gotta say, this really sold me on the idea of Jar Jar as being able to be a heroic character from time to time. And just, in a very big way, hit me over the head with how completely misused he was in episode one. But that's something I'll get to later. Wow. Well, I'm shocked. Jerry, what did you think? You know, I'll be honest with you. I I never got the Indiana Jones vibe off of it. But after you mentioned it to us earlier in an email today, I rewatched the episodes. and I was like, oh, OK, I get that. I see that. And but it never jumped out at me. For some reason, I felt like I was watching like a buddy cop movie, you know, between like two guys who would never be good partners. But for some reason, they click and they're kind of funny and they play off each other. And one isn't really competent but he sort of is but the, the other one's just like oh man i can't believe i gotta put up with this guy and then you even have you know the 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 ending of the first episode it's like well jar jar i think this is gonna get interesting and it's just it was such a starsky and hutch type ending or something for like a buddy cop show so that's kind of how i i interpreted it the, at least the first time i watched it but i would say i i agree with some of what Nathan's uh, uh, said. I, I've always preached that the problem with episode one and Jar Jar isn't Jar Jar himself, 
although the personality can be a little polarizing, of course. But what's really offensive about Jar Jar is how he did nothing. You could have had such a simple change of a few lines and made Jar Jar's purpose for existing in episode one be legitimate. Like, he's the only one who knows how to pilot that sub to take the Jedi to the surface. Or the Gungans assign Jar Jar to watch over the, the, the Jedi on this planet they know nothing about because they revere the Jedi so much. Simple stuff. You're like, okay, good. I get why Jar Jar's there. To Nathan's point, hey, we got a reason why Jar Jar's here. I like it. I think the storytelling's good. I'll get more into this, but my biggest problem with these episodes or episodes like this is just why do I care about what's going on? And I'll talk more about that as we go. And Jen, do you care? <laughs> when when we download when we we got these episodes on Netflix and we kind of were looking perusing at the synopses for them we saw as we were calling it at home the the Jar Jar Mace Windu team up it was just like oh god why are you doing this to me don't know and so I was pleasantly surprised this was not painful I really really thought I would just have my hand over my face the whole time like sobbing because it was so bad and. And it wasn't. I feel like this was actually a decent use of Jar Jar. Jar Jar was bothered me because I felt like he was too dumb to be alive. I feel like he should have just tripped and fallen into a like rototiller or something and died horribly many years ago. And so the fact that he has – he's kind of a dork and kind of unorthodox, but he has his own kind of weird wisdom and common sense in this – I actually really like that. I feel like that was a good use for him. And I feel like if we had had that in, like you guys were saying, episode one, I could have gotten behind this character a lot. It was actually really kind of fun. <laughs> I'm not sure about some of the stuff in it, but it was it was fun. And I'm going to have to make it four for four. I enjoyed this episode. I, I'm not going to say it was the best episode, but the sort of slapstick, bombad approach it took, I I found it engaging. And yes, as I feel, it, it definitely is Indiana Binks going on here. But why don't we get into the specifics of the episode or episodes? The stage is set when the queen of the Bardatan people contacts the Galactic Senate to request help. Apparently, a number of their masters have disappeared. And this indicates to them that an ancient prophecy is going to be fulfilled which spells darkness for the entire galaxy. Unfortunately, the Bardotan people don't trust the Republic or the Jedi as a whole and request that only one individual come to their aid, Jar Jar Binks. Now, as far as a setup, I thought this actually worked pretty well. We don't know anything about the Bardotan people, or Queen Julia for that matter, and the fact that they want Jar Jar, it seems to surprise everyone, but it kind of, as you said, makes Jar Jar a necessary character here. How did you guys feel about this setup? You know, Jonathan, the, the, the problem for me with this setup, and this just this is just baggage with Jar Jar, but anytime you hear someone say, Jar Jar's the only one that can help us, what immediately goes off in your mind is, why? How? 
Is this the right Jar Jar Binks? I mean, we've seen nothing in this series, and we know nothing about Jar Jar's background previous to episode one for this to be even a plausible premise for the episode. So I have to admit, the episode sort of isn't taking itself seriously with this kind of premise, so how can I? So... I'm not a fan of the premise. I don't get why Jar Jar is the only person we can turn to. And Queen is even like in in the episodes, you know, oh, Jar Jar, I knew you would be the one to help us. Why? What what do you know about Jar Jar that we obviously don't? I think that's sort of the the idea. It's sort of the bait and switch thing. You know, you think, oh, this is going to be another goofy one. Oh, Jar Jar is the one to save the day. It can't be that big of a problem, really. That sort of thing. I mean, that's sort of... uh, I mean, it's, it's everybody's reaction. We get a chance to see the Jedi Council finally with Opo Rancisus making an appearance, uh, with Adigalia's seat still unfilled, by the way. We get to see them, and we've seen the Senate be shocked at the idea that, well, you know, we're not going to send the people that Palpatine has picked. And then you've got the Jedi Council basically like, dude, Jar Jar. Even Obi-Wan says, you know, Jar Jar Binks. You know, everyone is shocked. But we find later that it is a perfectly logical choice. Well, not perfectly logical, a logical choice for her, because while she may think there are other people out there who may be able to save the day, if this is an instance where she doesn't know whom she can trust, and she doesn't trust the Republic necessarily, doesn't trust the Jedi necessarily, doesn't want to get dragged into the war and such, then it makes sense she would go for someone that she herself has a personal bond with, a personal connection with. And in her case, it's a previous relation and love interest. With Jar Jar Binks, I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, how do we get out of the Cuban Missile Crisis? In part, there is a back-channel communication from an old war buddy of Khrushchev's because it's one of the few people that he could trust to carry his message without diluting it along the way. Sorry, I just watched 13 Days recently. But it makes sense to me that she would call upon Jar Jar. I'm My shock, though it very quickly went away, is that the idea that Jar Jar could be someone's love interest, could be someone that was trusted in that way and could have sort of the the suaveness and the caring that he does with Julia. But again, I'm not sure that that's because of Jar Jar as a character. I think it's because of the way he's been portrayed so goofy in so many other instances that it's hard to think of him as a character that has all the same emotional range and and, uh, background than any other character would have. And Jerry, just to address your point a little bit earlier, that was something I thought about too. When did Queen Julia meet Jar Jar? Remember, there was a 10-year period between episodes 1 and 2 where, for at least a portion of it, Jar Jar was a representative to the Senate and may have engaged in negotiations. Well, that is – that's a plausible time frame. Maybe it's just like, a hey, the world's been unfair to Jar Jar, but it's one of those things that if the series – had given Jar Jar more moments, and I guess he's had a couple that have been okay. I'm not saying we needed to have necessarily been introduced to this particular character, but it just doesn't pass the litmus test of being plausible that Jar Jar's went on some sort of diplomacy, interacted with leaders of high governments, even if there was physical attraction between them and their romantic, that someone be like, okay, you know what? This is a crisis. The world, the universe, the galaxy as we know it is in jeopardy. Get Jar Jar on the phone. Well, they're kind of forced into this situation. It's not something of their choosing. I mean, Queen Julia, she just wants Jar Jar. And 
then Mace Windu kind of invites himself along, which is interesting because the Bardatans don't trust the Jedi because they view the Jedi as kidnappers who took their children unwillingly. And, you know, I got to be honest, I'm really surprised more people don't have an issue with the Jedi coming in and taking their children and never seeing them again. I, I'm really surprised that more issues like this haven't come up in either the series or I know it has come up in the EU somewhat, but not as much as one would think. Parents tend to be attached to their children. Yeah, I really kind of liked that Mace Windu was kind of a jerk in this episode because he was just swaggering around, kind of really had this massive ego thing going on. And it made it plausible that that the Jedi would be kind of swaggering into these situations and, and these other cultures would be like kind of just, who, who are you? Get out. We don't want you. Especially if, you, if you're stealing our kids, like, get out. So... I liked that. I feel like a lot of like the books and things I've read for Star Wars, there's this kind of irrational hatred for Jedi and it never really seemed plausible, but, but this I felt like was actually really good. And it makes Jar Jar work much better as a serious character, uh, or at least one to be taken seriously in this story. Because what do we get? They get there. He has to, Mace Windu has to give up his lightsaber. They don't necessarily trust him. He's only able to be there because Jar Jar vouches for him with Julia, and he's not allowed into that brief meeting with Julia, in which they're doing the meditation and everything, and she is about to spill the beans on everything. You know, I have been searching for the Degoyan masters from the ruling council, the Baktab council, who have gone missing. I've been meditating in the Force, and I saw something. Bum, bum, bum. And we'll find at the end of the two episodes that what she saw was mother freaking Towson. But she doesn't get a chance to say it. Because Mace has bypassed the guards that were supposed to be there keeping track of him because he doesn't trust Jar Jar to do the job well enough to get the information that they need. And he comes bursting in, polite, but bursting in and interrupts. And Jar Jar has to be the one to say, look, please don't arrest my buddy, uh, uh, Master and Mace. Please don't arrest him. I'll take care of this. And he basically gives Mace what little of a dressing down he could give. And and even has to go to the point of, you know, know, we need to find out more. She was about to tell me. Before you burst the heck in there, kind of stuff. You know, it, it blows my mind um, how just a few actions for Mace that seem like they're in the best of intentions, but kind of the jerky Jedi thing, can wind up turning Jar Jar into the straight man of the piece. And again, it works for me. Yeah, I mean, Mace is the bumbling idiot in some ways. He he screws it up. It something we would normally expect from Jar Jar, you know, with the best intentions, and he messes it up. Now, Nathan, back to what you said. I didn't get the impression that it was a brief meeting. I got the impression that Mace was waiting there for a while while uh, Julia and Jar Jar consulted. Well, why they went through their uh, Tai Chi lessons? Yeah. <laughs> I got the feeling that it was like evening when they arrived for some reason. And then it was like the next morning that they were in there doing the Tai Chi. So I don't know if that was just my perception was weirder. (laughs) I mean, but the whole thing was, I mean, it doesn't really matter the time. I mean, granted, Mace might be getting a little bit agitated if it's taken a while, but he's been told you're not involved in this. You wait outside by the queen of the planet. Instead of following diplomacy and trusting Jar Jar to be able to do what must be done, even if it requires some sheet changing later, basically just says, nope, sorry, not going to trust him. I'm going to zip around the people who are supposed to be guarding me 
and burst in because I think I can do the job better. In a lot of ways, this and I think this goes back to what what the we get at the end of I guess it's the first episode about you know him being able to understand Jar Jar more. It seems as though this is sort of an uplifting experience for Jar Jar, but in a lot of ways a humbling pair of episodes for Mace. Not just sort of acting like a bumbler from time to time. I don't think he ever gets into the slapsticky, goofy comedy relief mode, but he certainly is taken down a couple of notches in that there are times where he really should have bowed to Jar Jar's better wisdoms, which you don't see much. So while Mace and Jar Jar are sort of hashing this out, Queen Julia is abducted by what turns out to be little pygmy Bardottons in masks. I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. I mean, are there, we we don't know that much about the Bardotton species, but it seemed like there were two almost like subspecies, a tall version and a short version. And the shorter version is where you get ones uh, like the ones that first meet. There's a taller one and a shorter one that first meet them uh, when they arrive on the planet. Um, These fangrawl or or frangowl, it's hard to say, it's F-R-A-N-G-A-W-L. But the frangowl are said to be this species or this, uh, this part of the society, I guess they're not a species, um, but part of the Bardotten society that ruled them in their early days um, were somehow these these great warriors, and history now looks at them as barbarians because they use sort of dark magics and such uh, in part of how their, their power was accumulated, though they're not force users themselves in theory, um, but or at least the modern-day ones aren't. But eventually, somehow, they're defeated, and they become sort of this, this underground cult, and what we think of as the modern Bardotten society – uh, winds up being in charge. One thing that that did get me though about the way they set these up, and I think it works well enough, and it works just as well um, as the thuggy in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom did as this secret society on this planet. But they take it that next step, making that parallel between the two, and they take the leader of the cult and never reveal the leader's face. But we are supposed to just assume, and this is the one thing that gets me about their storytelling in this, we are supposed to just assume, because we've seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, that High Seneschal Patine, the one that meets them there and the somewhat taller of the different ones that we see, uh, but not super tall, of the ones in the Baktov Council, um, that he is the leader of the Frangal, just like Chatter Law, the Prime Minister of Pankot, is the thuggy leader in Temple of Doom. But they never show that in the episode. Um, the, the idea that they have a way in because they have a man on the inside, a high-placed man on the inside, I think would have been something that would have been helpful to know instead of just having us kind of assume because, oh, hey, I saw a story like this once that George Lucas did. It's the one place the Frangal thing doesn't ring quite true with me. Wait a minute. Where where did you get that? Because that that completely flew over my head. They were the same guy. StarWars.com episode guide for this episode. See, it goes because there is nothing in the episode to tell us that at all. Jen, Jerry, did you got either of you catch that? No, I was waiting for the reveal of who the the Molarama, I guess you could, guy was, and and I don't think they ever really did. I didn't catch it. No, 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 no. I'm. I just thought it was irrelevant. I mean, the the real hook for the show was Mother Talzin, so I didn't think any of the people between point A and point B was really that important. So we find out about this ancient cult that may have abducted the queen, and Jar Jar and Mace descend 
to the ancient temple, which is below the existing temple. Bad idea, guys. It's, you know, didn't you see poltergeist? You, you never build on the ancient burial grounds. What were you thinking? And Jar Jar is abducted with magic vanishing paint or bead or whatever. Hey, did they get that from the Ewoks? Is that is that the is that the disappearing they soap made it from the Ewoks or something? <laughs> yeah. Turns out the face on the masks of the Frangal are actually supposed to be Duloc grimaces. And if you want to know what we're talking about, go check our archives and see. Jerry, Nathan, Barrent, and I, when we reviewed the Ewoks animated series from 1985 and 1986. But don't watch along or you'll want to claw your eyes out. So Jar Jar is abducted and thrown in a cage. And this is this is where it just was screaming Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom to me. We had a bunch of a couple of friends over while we were watching this. We just wanted to share the pain since we thought it would be just terrible. And it was actually really funny because as soon as this scene opened up, the whole like six of us were just like, Kali Ma like it was it was that noticeable. <laughs> like all at once. It was great. How many of you were expecting somebody to lose their heart? Oh, everybody. We were like, who's it obviously it wasn't gonna be Jar Jar, it was gonna be the poor dude in the other in the cage but we were like are they gonna rip his heart out what are they gonna rip out something's gonna get pulled out of him <laughs> apparently since it's star wars it can't be your heart because that's not good for kids they can't even show the impalements half the time uh, <laughs> instead it's gotta be your soul because souls are okay now this was interesting have we ever really seen somebody stealing the force i mean i would figure if it was possible lots of people would be doing it well, there's the whole concept of force energy as something that you can use in sort of a technological sense. That's what the Rakatans technology was based on. They were introduced in the Knights of the Old Republic game. Um, they've expanded since, mostly in Dawn of the Jedi, as the Infinite Empire, this empire that ruled a big chunk of, well, a decent-sized chunk of the galaxy prior to the formation of the Republic. And it is is them clashing with the Jedi, J-E apostrophe D-A-I-I that eventually leads to the Force War on Tython and the emergence of the Jedi Order. They're sort of like the the prototypical enemy. In fact, their lightsabers weren't even lightsabers, they were Force Sabers. You channeled the dark side to activate them. So, sucking it out to put into another person? Not necessarily. Sucking it out to mutate a person or sucking it out of uh, Force-sensitive people as a means of powering devices? Yes. Going back, uh, actually, almost a decade now, I guess, with KOTOR. When this cult is revealed, it – I mean, they seem actually somewhat competent as villains. They, you know, aren't overpowered by Mace very quickly. He has some trouble with them. Jar Jar is controlled. I I, I have to say, when you first saw them, you, you, you're thinking – well, at least I was. I, I kind of had this internal groan like, oh, boy, here we go. But – as foils for this episode, they weren't bad. What do you guys think? You know, the the one thing I liked about them was is that obviously what they're doing was very menacing. I mean, what we saw on screen was Jar Jar encounter one of them, and then Jar Jar goes all Tron when he disappears, and then they they still have him. They're taking him. It's kind of creepy. It's like, man, who who are these guys? I honestly didn't like their look. They they 
in design reminded me at least what I remember from the toys and just seeing them years ago when Force Unleashed was coming out the the uh, Felution folks and and to me that was just sort of like a, a little bit of a callback I don't know if it was an intentional or if it was just a coincidence in the similarity of design so not a big fan of it though I mean I I I didn't really uh, like their look uh, but 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 I I'll give it to them that the creatures themselves what they were doing and stealing people's souls and pushing them down the big slip and slide all the way into that green energy that that took that away it seemed menacing you're like holy crap these guys are actually like you know stealing their souls i thought i was watching mortal Kombat, you know and so i i, I followed it but I, I i wasn't digging the creature design the character design it's funny you mention the Felutions because that version of the Felutions, not the more cuddly ones we saw in the cartoon series but the ones of the force unleashed were actually supposed to show up later in the Clone Wars, except, of course, it wound up being something that they never got around to. It was something Filoni talked about on the blog and such. It's menacing what they're doing. You know, they're going to sacrifice their soul, basically, to Malmoral, the demon of war, etc., etc. Uh, not sure why you need a slide to do it. Um, very Rube Goldberg and such in terms of what they got going on there as far as all the switches and everything. You know, here, let's put the weight over here and we'll move this. Um, what got me, though, I mean, they... Because we never really see the face behind the masks in a lot of ways. We just see some of their, you know, like the Ming-Po animal trainer guy or uh, the Zygerian woman with the Eopies that she releases. We never really get a chance to see much in the way of the actual cultists without the masks and such. So they seem like this sort of faceless pygmy style enemy that is very generic in their design. Look, look, look like something you could have seen if these were human limbs sticking out. You could see this in just about any movie from you know 50 years ago portraying a tribe out of Africa attacking settlers or something. Um, but I think what nails it is when they finally give a face to the force that has been essentially manipulating them by manipulating the leader through visions, and it winds up being Mother Talzin, that to me adds a layer of menace back to them. When you go back and watch it the second time, recognizing they're doing all this for her, you know they're menacing in what they're doing, but the menace in a very real sense, instead comes for who it is they're doing all of this for. Not some demon of war that we're never going to see, or some prophecy that we don't expect to see fulfilled, but motherfucking Talzin that we've had to deal with previous times before. That's what finally gives them at least that air of menace uh, on a second rewatch. So you would think that Mace, at least, would be able to make short work of these guys, but... Instead, they're able to take Queen Julia and escape in their ship to – are they going to like a moon? It didn't look like they went very far. Yeah, it's the moon known as Zardasa Styx, though apparently the episode guy can't figure out how to spell it because they keep changing the spelling. But Zardasa Styx, and might I say that was a freaking awesomely designed craft. I love the look of their ship. No, I agree. There was something – sort of almost organic in the design, it, like a bird. I I enjoyed it. Jar Jar and Mace return to the, I guess, the council and inform them that they're going to go after Queen Julia. And the council informs them that they have only three rotations before the prophecy is fulfilled. So there is a time frame. You know, these stupid little things that sometimes take me out of these episodes. This was one. Why not follow right away? Why wait? Why go back and give a report? You know, you're hot on the trail. Go after them. Turns out it doesn't matter because in the second episode, they haven't gotten very far when Mace and Jar Jar make it to the moon. 
I just kind of figured it was on the way, right? I mean, they're got, they have to go back to their ship to leave the planet to go to the moon. And if the whole thing was that the shrine is underneath the temple and the temple was where the government group, uh, the Royal Council, the Bot Top Council was meeting, then on their way up, they stop, they get resources if they need it, they give a report, and then they take off. It would be kind of the other plot hole would have been what if they just ran up their gun on the ship and took off and everybody back at the council's like, where are they going? Where would Julia go? What's what's going on? So they arrive on the moon and Mace and Jar Jar have probably my favorite exchange of the whole duology. Jar Jar's ready to run off and Mace says, no, we're going to wait. And he meditates to kind of use the force to try to see where they're going. And he's like, I see this. And Charger's like, yeah, I see it too. Can we go now? I, I, I don't know why, but that made me laugh. I enjoyed that. It takes me back to the buddy cop thing, but only the roles are kind of changed. You, you no. wouldn't have expected Jar Jar in that case of being sort of the tough guy, let's call it, of um, yeah, yeah, whatever, let's get going. And, you know, he, he I like how he turns that Phantom Menace line, Maxi Big is the Force. I guess it was really sarcastic in both places, but I like how Jar Jar uses that, almost kind of being condescending to the Jedi, saying, yeah, yeah, you and your Force, whatever, sort of thing. And so it is kind of a, a little spunk in Jar Jar that we don't get to see or appreciate all the time. All right, I've got to ask the question because I've never seen the movie. Have you guys seen the film The Man with Samuel L. Jackson and Eugene Levy? No. Uh, parts of it. I know what you're talking about. I've I, I caught it on TV a time or two briefly. I know the movie. Hey, never. I, I know nothing about the film, but if that is a buddy-type film, that is, according to the episode guide, uh, part of what inspired having Jar Jar Binks and Mace Windu be the two characters working together in these episodes. <laughs> so there may be sort of a buddy aspect to this. I, I just, I'm not familiar with the film, personally. Well, see, that, that's exactly what I described earlier as the buddy cop or the, 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 the very unlikely duo that got brought together for circumstances beyond, you know, other than just like, hey, they're normal partners, but circumstances brought them together. That's, that's a perfect example of what I was describing. That's interesting to, to know that that was actually an inspiration, especially since Samuel Jackson's uh, obviously a common denominator. So Mason Jar Jar are in hot pursuit. And this is where Cairo Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of rang for me because with the animals and kind of running around, uh, again, this you, you know where they're pulling it from. It seems like this whole duology is plagiarism of a sort. No, it's called an homage when you do it in – no, no. <laughs> I was waiting for him to shoot somebody after like they had done a really extravagant swords like demonstration. I was really waiting for that. And when it didn't happen, I was actually kind of surprised. <laughs> Yes, it works pretty well. I mean, we've got uh, this sense that they are everywhere, right? Because as they are trying to uh, to get Julia to their, they call it a rail speeder, the thing that's going to finally take them to that crazy contraption out of, uh, on top of the ziggurat, there's this in the sense that there's more than just Bardotans involved. And you've got these two non-Bardotans who kind of at the nod, one of them releases the EOPs at them. Of course, Mace just winds up running atop them, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and then you've got the animal trainer who releases the two Gundarks at them. The only thing that got me about this, I mean, I, I love the, the, the way that it plays out is fun. And to have Jar Jar be the one to use his tongue to grab Mace's lightsaber while he can't really do anything because he's distracted and essentially spit it up into the air so Mace can grab it in the forest and reclaim it and everything. 
Um, oh, very cool, very interesting stuff. And then you stop and watch it a second time, and you think about the Mace Windu we've seen in other places, especially the Tartakovsky series, and you think, dude did not need a lightsaber to only take down a couple of Gundarks. He should have been able to just force push once, and they're paced on the walls. But it made for a thrilling sequence. I don't know why I thought about the, the Vapad style that he uses, which is not only a lightsaber form, it's also a physical combat. Yeah, I agree with you. Even leaving out the Tartakovsky series, which could have been kind of, I always think of it as kind of tall tales. Mace shouldn't have had the issues. But my favorite, uh, I guess, roadblock was the crazy little guy with the E-Web blaster. I, 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 I liked that. And I guess we sort of did get a kind of moment, except instead of it being someone doing that and then getting shot, remember, that's what Jar Jar's doing as he charges the E-Web. You know, gotta be brave! And he runs out, and by the time he gets there, you know, eyes closed, head down, and wah with his arms, you know, Mace has already taken out the gunner, but you get sort of that moment with Jar Jar. That was one of the funnier moments uh, to me in the thing. So then the action moves out to the ziggurat where they're preparing to sacrifice Queen Julia and absorb her force energy, her living force aura. And we discover that the mastermind behind this plan is Mother Talzin. It was a bit of a surprise to see Mother Talzin back. I wasn't disappointed, but what was the plan here, guys? The more they said queen... Uh, from Mace's perspective, and, and Jar Jar's referring to the Queen of the Frangal, and them referring to her as the Queen Mother, or I guess as the Great Mother, for some reason, I never saw it coming. And just out of nowhere, holy crap, it's Mother Talzin back again. But the plan is a little odd, to say the least. They're able to take the living force out of the members of the council by sliding them down the thing and then sticking them in the energy of the mouth of that sort of uh, uh, sculpture, I guess it is, or structure it is shaped like their demon of war, and then take that energy and put it into this orb that later is referred to as the living sphere. And in her case, apparently that either that's not good enough or the fact that they were driven away from there means they've got to use something else, almost like this was the secondary or the fallback plan, because if it was their plan the entire time, why not uh, like why not just either run her through the way the others were being run through or what was the point of running the others through the way that they did is there something special about her because she's a queen but supposedly when the sun and the moon and according to the episode guide it's actually more stars than just the moon and the sun and all that kind of stuff but when something celestial aligns right and this contraption is aligned just right that conjunction has essentially an energy like the eclipse and everything that goes with it has an energy that is supposed to basically zap down and when it hits her that will rip the soul from her just like that energy thing was doing back at the shrine underneath uh, the other temple the Dagoyan temple and somehow by putting her essence into the orb the living sphere that would allow Mother Talzin who apparently it sure sounds like she's saying she can't use the Force at all because she's not Sith or not Jedi, can sort of use that to amplify her own powers, supposedly making her the most powerful being in the galaxy, something beyond Jedi, beyond Sith, and so forth. Um, that 
is very unclear. The whole thing with Mother Towson, the idea that she might not be a force user at all, that she's able to do this to imbue herself with that energy and then use it, but she eventually has to refill, like refilling a tank of gas, or the issue of, well, maybe she touches the cosmic force or the unifying force, but she doesn't touch um, the living force. Or, or maybe when she does, she thinks of it as magic and doesn't think of it as the force, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that has been explained. But in theory, what we've got here essentially is a ritual designed to replace what happened underneath in the shrine that is meant to basically not only refill, but add some nitro uh, into the tank for Towson, uh, who is, of course, weakened because we last saw her back in Massacre getting her butt kicked. I guess we last saw her uh, in action, at least, back in Massacre when the Night Sister tribe was pretty much wiped. I think we've seen her once since then, but basically it's all been designed around this idea that, well, she needs to refill her energies because her support structure is gone. That's what sense I was able to make out of it, though it did take two viewings and an episode guide. Okay, Nathan, you just went over a lot of information that I, I'd like to address and I'd like to get Jen and Jerry's opinion on this. First of all, I kind of always assumed that they were eventually going to bring Queen Julia to the moon because that is where Talzin meets them. That and I got the impression that that was always going to be the meeting place, that whatever they did underneath the temple, the end game was going to be on the moon. One. Two, the thing about Mother Talzin saying that she's not a Force user like a Jedi or Sith. Yeah, that blew my mind. Because we know there are countless other beings or disciplines that allow you to touch the Force. And you don't necessarily have to fall into the specific category of Jedi or Sith, or even Dark Jedi and Sith. You know, it's been throughout both the EU and other movies. I mean, even the Bardatans, it says that they do not use the force the same way. But again, I, I'm, I know Mother Talzin said that she's going to make herself the most powerful being, more powerful than any Jedi or Sith. But what does that mean? What is she going to do with it? Is she going to rebuild the Night Sister clan? Is she going to, you know, take on Dooku for revenge? What, what is, what is the point here? She will be the most powerful night sister ever, and she'll even stop the night sister from dying. <laughs> now, this is something that, in thinking about this and writing down my notes, occurred to me, and I want to get your guys' opinion. Is Mother Talzin truly a night sister? Now, follow me here. We know that the night sisters can use the Force and tap the Force. We saw it with Asajj. She, we saw it with. Well, I mean, a knight brother in the form of Maul and Savage. And is it possible that Mother Towson came in and assumed the role of mother of the Night Sisters and was absorbing their energy like she was planning to absorb the Bardatan? Is she something else entirely? I've always kind of wondered what's up with her, especially with her voice, since it's almost several voices at once and i this episode made me wonder if that weird multi-level voice is because she has absorbed other people before so 
I have no idea what's going on with her. I kind of just suspend my disbelief entirely because I'm so confused about what she represents. Like I just don't, she doesn't fit in any nice neat box in, in as far as the star Wars universe is concerned, at least in my experience. So I just kind of smile and nod whenever she's on the screen. <laughs> I don't understand her. I don't feel like she fits anywhere. Yeah, my thing is that I, I never once doubted that she was, whether she was a night sister or not. What I doubted or what I felt like this episode was trying to do is make you question how the night sisters tap into the force. Like, like we really don't have access to the force like Jedi and Sith unless we take it and extract it like force vampires you know like if we can steal the force away from someone then we can charge our batteries with it and use it like a spell but then she says oh i i tap into i forget her exact wording but like i i use the black magic or the black arts or whatever she said to tap into my powers but she's obviously done some amazing things like you know what we saw her, uh, her do to savage and Darth Maul and kind of, you know, taking, um, um, you know, all the, the metal and junk just laying around the room or wherever they're at, an umbrella, a picnic table and whatever to make Darth Maul's legs and just like fabricate him a lightsaber seemingly out of nothing. It's just like, okay, I, I'm hearing you say that you're not really a Jedi, but what you are seems to be so much cooler actually. And, you know, she, she even has a, creates a kind of a weapon there on the spot that she can go head-to-head with Mace Windu's lightsaber with. So it's like, I kind of maybe a little ignorantly walked out of that thinking, man, if she's not a Jedi or a Sith, you know, like a true Force user, what the heck is she? So it got my intrigue raised. The thing that came up to me, and God help me, because it was not something that I wanted to remind myself of, was recently in the in the EU novels, there was a character of Abeloth that was something different than your traditional Force user, and even drew in the Mortis storyline with the father, the son, and the daughter. I always had an issue with Mother Talzin and her persona as a night sister. One, she seemed to be so far beyond the other night sisters around her. And her as a night sister was also very different than what we knew about the night sisters. And I, I mean, I know I understand it's the difference between books and the Clone Wars series and George's vision and everything else like that. But it just kind of makes sense to me like she was something else and she was using the night sisters and now maybe she's using the Bardotten. Nathan, how does this fit into what we know? All right, well, there's a lot of speculation about just who she is in relation to everything else. What the, the prevailing theory right now is, and it's just a theory, is that she is or should be considered one of them. Because what we've got, and this is with some working apparently that was going on between uh, Leland Chi Consulting and such with the Fate of the Jedi novels with Abeloth and what was going on with the planning of that series versus what was going on in the Clone Wars with Mortis and everything is it essentially, in the grand scheme of things of Star Wars, that means EU and everything else. There are these beings known as Celestials that were sort of thought to be the earliest big major, uh, one of the earliest big major forces in the galaxy. Like these are the ones that created things that, you know, like, like the Maw, the black holes around Kessel, uh, beings of immense power. And that eventually they became, whatever the heck that means, beings like the ones, the ones being the father, the son, and the daughter. 
uh, that they first manifested themselves on a particular planet that has no name. We just know it as Abelos planet in Fate of the Jedi, which has extreme force connections just like the Mortis planet did, though it is a separate one, including things like the font of power and the pool of knowledge. And that there was the father, the son, and the daughter, and the father was keeping balance between the two. They never talk about a mother. Then they say that there's this girl on the planet who winds up living with them, becoming essentially a servant, but she's just a normal being, not one of these celestials become ones. And eventually when she decides to drink from the font of power and bathe in the pool of knowledge, essentially kind of an Adam and Eve, you know, don't you dare do this, but they do it anyway. Her original sin, so to speak, transforms her into essentially a being of chaos. If the father is order, she is chaos. Um, the reason why the, the fear was that by, by the end of uh, the balance and the end of the father, the son, and the daughter, that the Clone Wars would still rage and darkness would still rage was because it unleashed the chaos unrestrained upon the galaxy. And that eventually they had to leave her there on the planet, even constructing the Maw and Center Point Station to keep her under control so that then they could leave her without unleashing her on the galaxy. And then they went to Mortis, which sure looks like a Thoyor monolith, but that's a whole other Dawn of the Jedi thing. But there's never a sense that anywhere within that backstory there is an original mother. And there was always a sense that that is an obvious gap within the storyline, that there's this being who becomes like a mother, but Abeloth has always uh, talked about as if she was the interloper. She was, if anything, the stepmother or um, the one who comes in and acts like a mother when she shouldn't be because she started as the servant and you know she wasn't one of them. Which begs the question, was there one of them at one point? Was it really just the three, or was there a mother involved? And if there are any, the most likely candidate is Mother Talzin, her ability to turn into mist, the ability to control the Force without claiming to be a Force user like the Jedi and Sith, and the fact that in the EU, in this case another one based very much off of consultations back and forth, the Book of Sith, one of those uh, books by Dan Wallace that winds up having that giant deluxe version with all the... You know, the trappings of Sith Holocron, you got to press the button to open it and everything, delineates the Night Sister religion and the two primary deities of good and evil in the Night Sister religion are the animal forms of the son and daughter. So I would argue that the that the prevailing theory is probably right, that she's supposed to be one of the ones, but I can't imagine we're ever going to get an answer to that unless it comes in the Son of Dathomir comics. And I'd like to apologize to all our listeners right now for Nathan and mine really muddying the issue, but it's something that did occur to me. And for spoiling Fate of the Jedi, but trust me, only the last few were all that good anyway. The rest of them pretty much suck. So this climax is action-packed, first with Mace and Jar Jar having to defeat the Stone Warriors, which seemed pretty technologically advanced for being something as ancient-sounding as Stone Warriors, and then Mace and Mother Talzin face off, and as was alluded to earlier, Mother Talzin pulls a lightsaber-like weapon out of thin air and is ultimately defeated by Mace. What did you guys think of how they handled this? I was at the point where everything was kind of so ridiculous that when Mother Talzin did pull out that like sword, saber, I don't even know what it was, out of nowhere... I was kind of geeking out at that point. It was like, this is so over the top and so ridiculous. I'm having an enormous amount of fun right now. <laughs> so like, it, it made no sense. It was kind of ridiculous, but like, it was really fun to watch. Kind of the theme here. Ridiculous, but I'm loving it. It's ridiculous, but it all kind of flows 
logically. Jar Jar touches the, the pillar, it activates the stone guardians. It wasn't like they had some kind of surveillance system. He touched it and it sensed him. They start coming active throughout the battle. One, he basically accidentally causes one to blast another, grabs the weapon off of it, which is kind of convenient, but then manages to blast his way through them. It's very powerful weapons, unfortunately, so powerful that it knocks them out themselves. But I think it, just like that is sort of the almost like an accidental fortuitous way out of it, him getting the blaster. That's kind of what happens at the end, because it's not so much that Mace defeats Talzin. He's I mean, he's battling with Talzin with the blades and everything. But the real battle that's going to save the day here is going on back at the, the, the alignment disc, the thing that that Julia is attached to, because Jar Jar is able to free her. But then he is grappling with um, the leader who's supposed to be Patine, presumably uh, grappling with him. And he is holding him to the thing, to the, the sphere, or whatever you call it, the disc, the lens, according to the episode guide, when the planets and everything come into alignment and zap comes down the energy, Julia has to jump and grab him out of the way, sort of her being the one saving the day instead of him, which is kind of cool. And when it hits, it zaps the soul out of Patine slash cult leader, whose soul goes into the orb, but it's shaken by all of this. The orb then drops, is essentially destroyed, um, it shatters, and that's what causes the big kaboom that somehow almost makes it look like it turned night into day, frankly. Um, but then kaboom, and that's the end of Talzin's plot, that she has to basically fade away and run away. It's not even so much Mace that manages to defeat her so much as it's the combination, it seems like, of Jar Jar and Julia and, well, Gravity. Ah, Gravity, my old adversary. But how else could a Jar Jar-centric story end, though? It can't be that Jar Jar beats somebody up, because that's not really in character with him. And if Mace officially saves the day, then it's not Jar Jar as the hero. So I like the fact that it puts it very much on him making a heroic act and Julia for him doing a heroic act, while Mace is the one basically trying to keep Talzin busy. All right. Well, Nathan, you've told us a little bit, but how does this episode fit into the overall continuity? Is there anything that it either helps or hurts? Um, or just has sort of the little the oddities showing up here and there. I've already mentioned quite a few. I'm not going to retread old ground. You mentioned the end scene being a reference to Last Crusade. So it's really only uh, three things for Continuity Corner this time. One is where the name of Bardanta came from. No kidding. Episode Guide says it. The planet Bardanta was named after Bridget Bardo. Never would have imagined that. We also, speaking of the Bardantans, have a name change here that is not a name change at the same time. The character of Mars Guo, the pod racer, is actually a Bardantan. He's meant to be the same species as the characters in these two episodes, but the Expanded Universe for the longest time have called them Fui, P-H-U-I-I, and saying they're from the planet Fu in the Fu system because there was a name Ofuchi uh, for a planet in a draft version of The Phantom Menace, and they thought it'd be kind of cool to reuse sort of the same uh, sounds to create this name as an homage to it. So now we've got what we thought, at least initially, was, oh crap, a new home planet, a new species name for this species, the old names are out the door. Instead, all they've done is they've said in the episode guide that from a continuity standpoint, they're so widespread throughout the galaxy that the Bardantans probably wouldn't actually refer to themselves based on their ancestral home. They would simply refer to it as 
their home worlds. So just like humans can be Karelians or, or from Tatooine and so forth, they would simply call themselves, you know, Fui from Fu or Bardatans from Bardata. No big deal. The last thing, as for Mother Towson, she does shriek. She does fade into mist. And there's the thought that, oh, maybe she's finally dead and gone. Not so much. Uh, the episode guide does tell us that Towson is not dead. Her story is, quote, not over yet. And we got to probably assume that if we're going to get an answer to what that means, as I said before, it's very, very likely to come up within Son of Dathomir. If you're not following it, that is a series of scripts meant for late in season six that never got produced that were handed over to Dark Horse Comics and writer Jeremy Barlow to go through and adapt into comic form to give us what amounts to the end, supposedly, of Darth Maul's story within the Clone Wars and given that it's called Son of Dathomir, you got to figure Towson's going to play into there somewhere. But before we get to that, final thoughts, gentlemen and lady. And why don't we go with ladies first? I thought this was a fun pair of episodes. I don't know that it made a whole lot of sense in this kind of greater framework of the Clone Wars. But just taken as like two, like a, like a little one-off mini arc, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, there were some weird places like the mother's tall zoom stuff didn't entirely make sense but it was so cheesy from the get-go that i was willing to suspend my disbelief quite a lot and because of that it was really fun and this is probably one of the most fun arcs of the clone wars jerry you know um i i have to categorize these two episodes as i said earlier i think i said this earlier around just like yeah who cares though I am taken to a planet I've never heard of. I've met a species of people I've never heard of. Their biggest faith is in Jar Jar, who I care little about. And even though I think the story was well told, well paced, heck, it was only two episodes. So, you you know, it's not like you chalked up three or four episodes for an arc and you're just like, oh, come on. You know, how many times have we said, you know, they could have condensed that down to like two episodes instead of the three or four we got and it had been all the same. Well, hey, this is what they, they gave us. Two episodes, not a huge time commitment, uh, a, a competently done episode, but it doesn't go down into episodes of Clone Wars that I am likely to ever watch again because I just don't care. If Dave Filoni always said, George Lucas is teaching me how to do Star Wars, and this is the Star Wars that he's supposedly commissioned from Lucas Lucasfilm to go do, then I understand, and I will thank Disney on some levels, for just putting an end to it because we're getting irrelevant episodes that, by and large doesn't impact anything I care about. Yes, we got to see a little bit of what makes Mother Talzin tick, but it's still very unclear. And, eh, you know, it's fine. We don't know. It, you know, it, it created more questions and answers, and maybe they're going to then tie it into a whole bunch of other stuff, like I think Nathan alluded to. Take me back to the clones doing something Clone Wars that has something to do with the Republic and the Separatists. Overall, fine episodes. Not bad, but... I'm not going to visit it again. I think you know we're we're probably only as positive with these episodes as we are because they were these lost episodes that we didn't think we'd ever get. So we're seeing them as bonus episodes or bonus content from like a DVD or Blu-ray and we're just thankful we get a chance to see them. It's better than not seeing them. I don't know if that's like the least 
impactful compliment ever to say that, hey, I'm glad that I got to see it versus it never getting made at all. But beyond that, it's just a blah episode that I will never revisit. And I'm going to have to go with Jen on this. I didn't walk into this expecting a lot, and I guess I was pleasantly surprised on just how much fun it was. I don't know if it's going to be heavy in my rotation of watching, but I could see seeing these again. Uh, it's going to be a while. I watched it three times for this uh, for this recording. But it was just silly and fun and, you know, with elements of Star Wars sprinkled into it. I mean, it, it, it didn't jar me like some episodes where I would just like, I would rather gouge my eyes out than watch it again, <clears throat> Sunny Day in the Void. But I don't know. I, Jerry, I, I'm going to have to say I think you're being a little hard on it. Nathan, what did you think? I mean, like I said, I think these are the best, probably the best Jar Jar stories that we've ever gotten. Um, it's certainly something uh, also in terms of being you know, a, a reference to something else. I think this played itself better as a story that has references and ties into Temple of Doom than the Zillow Beast episodes did with, you know, Godzilla and Japanese monster movies, or whichever it was, Bounty Hunters, or whichever it was that was supposed to be doing the Magnificent Seven and such. It just, it, it hit all the right notes for me in that regard, and it managed to wind up playing a role in the arc of Mother Talzin, which was not something that I expected us to see in the Jar Jar episodes. Um, but, I, but this sort of brought something to clarity for me when Mark and I were talking today recording for Star Wars Beyond the Films. We had talked before the show, and one of the things that hit me was how can Jar Jar as a character be as strong as he was here in this episode but never really seem like he is anywhere else? That the goofiness, the sort of innocent wisdom or the innocent desire to do good that sometimes winds up going awry because of his bumbling – it really builds up the character here. It makes him even more tragic, I would say, based on him having been the one in Episode 2 to have to call for the you know, Grand Army of the Republic and all and fulfill the Sith's desires. But it strikes me that this goes back to sort of the original framing of the character. We talk a lot when we talk about EU stuff as, uh, does this story capture the character well? Honor Among Thieves, great job with Han, uh, Brian Wood's Star Wars, uh, Luke's whiny and impetuous and... Uh, breaking orders because he's angry about a girl, which maybe you could get out of A New Hope, but not so much most of the other stuff around it. But it strikes me, looking back on Jar Jar, that it was like he was set up for us to hate. You go back to episode one, nobody except maybe Padme treats Jar Jar with a lick of respect throughout that entire film. Anakin, you know, hit the news! Basically, you're an idiot, duh! Um... Even C-3PO is calling him odd. Qui-Gon is, you know, calling him a local and telling him to basically go away initially, uh, manages to essentially manipulate him at a couple of different points, grabs the guy by the tongue, and what does Obi-Wan say upon meeting him? Not, who is this, but what's this? You know, what is this creature? I'm not even going to acknowledge you at first as sentient. Every step of the way in that movie... It, it, there's no sympathy towards Jar Jar. He gets his tongue fried. Oh, it's just goopy slapstick. Nobody cares or checks to make sure he's okay. He's just zapped. Never is there any sympathy for the character in the episode. Uh, that is episode one, Phantom Menace, not these episodes. And never does it seem as though anyone actually gives him his due whatsoever. There's no caring. There is no respect. And if none of the other characters around the character are doing that, no one in the audience is going to either. There are goofy moments 
in the classic trilogy, though maybe not quite as over, over the top as with Jar Jar, but those characters always were shown to respect and care for one another so that those moments came off as comedy relief, not goofy slapstick of this character you're meant to groan about. Jar Jar was framed by George Lucas to be a character that we hated, and it played its role well. Now, if this is what we're seeing as far as what Jar Jar could have been, that's just, honestly, it's another nail in the in the coffin of how The Phantom Menace handled the storytelling as the beginning of the Star Wars film saga. Because we've got a character here who had a heck of a lot more potential, apparently, than anything Lucas gave us. Again, I defy anyone to look at episode one and tell me that anywhere in that film we are given any reason not to believe that Lucas set up Jar Jar not to be slapstick, but to be the character that we disliked. Well, I want to thank my three co-hosts for joining me this evening to discuss this duology. And we will see everyone next time when we discuss the final four episodes of The Clone Wars Season 6. Have a good night, everyone. See ya. See you next time. Good night. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Republic Forces Radio Network. You can find our reviews of previous Clone Wars episodes, as well as reviews of the Clone Wars micro-series, the classic Droids and Ewok series, and the theatrical Clone Wars movie in our archive section at www.republicforces.com. And be sure to listen to our other Star Wars podcast, Star Wars Action News, covering all aspects of Star Wars collecting, from figures to high-end collectibles. Star Wars Action News is at SWActionNews.com. Republic Forces Radio Network is hosted by Jonathan, Jerry, Nathan, Dan, Jen, Arnie, and Barrett. Republic Forces Radio Network, RepublicForces.com, and Star Wars Action News are not affiliated with Lucasfilm or any official Star Wars-related company. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains are copyright and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. Republic Forces Radio Network is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. And I need to just write up this gigantic summary. And so when we're done tonight, I have to write the abstract. Nice. So when you say the show's going to be 90 minutes, you mean it. I mean it. Besides, <laughs> I don't think any of us is going to be able to uh, yeah. tolerate no, talking about Jar Jar. From I think we end. could <laughs> jump right into final thoughts and wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> and this indicates to them that an ancient prophecy is going to be an ancient prophecy is going to be good god why what what do you know about jar jar that we obviously don't well apparently she knows a lot about jar jar that we don't and i'm not sure i want to (laughs) yeah yeah and may have engaged in negotiations not so much aggressive negotiations as silky negotiations perhaps we don't know their mating rituals Jar Jar, come on in and I'll make you breakfast. <laughs> but it's six o'clock at night. I know. <laughs> no, Misa, no. 
I was actually wondering if these were some sort of genetic distant cousins of the Gungans. They, there is similarities there. They don't have their eyes on stalks, but I mean, for my eye, they looked very similar. So, well, if they're not genetically compatible, that's some serious safe sex for Jar Jar. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think of something, but yeah, I, I can't. Oh boy. See, these are the, the these are the these are the points where uh, you know you, you miss Barrett on the call because I'm sure he would have had a lot to say about you know Jar Jar. He would say this is the episode with the black man stereotype and the black man, so of course someone's getting it on or something like that. Oh gosh! All right, <laughs> he would have said something like that. <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, 